Hello and welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. The Jewish temple was destroyed in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Have you ever considered how it is that you could deal with forgiveness of sins if you don't have a place to offer the sacrifices of the bull or the scapegoat or lambs or any of the sacrifices that are described in the Old Testament as taking place exclusively in the temple in Jerusalem. Now on the Temple Mount, instead of the Jewish temple that stood there for uh, in first and second temple periods, about a thousand years, uh, now it's the Al-Aqsa Mosque, um, which is the third holiest shrine in Islam. Uh, where does that leave the world? Where does it leave all of us who look to uh, Jerusalem and the uh, people of the book as the hope of salvation in the world. So this weekend we celebrate the feast of Christ the King. Let's talk about why it is that we Catholics proclaim Christ as King of the universe and what it has to offer all of humanity. The Wall Street Journal ran an article on November 17th earlier this week uh, entitled, A Rabbi Tempts Fate on Jerusalem's Temple Mount. Israelis are beginning to buck the state's ban on Jewish prayer at Judaism's holiest site. Written by Armin Rosen, really an interesting article. But he here's what he says, how he opens the article. But for it mattered for any other reason, Jerusalem was the center of a sacrificial cult. According to Jewish eschatology, this is what it will be again one day when earthly existence is perfected and third and the third temple stands over the even Hashitiyah, I probably said it wrong, the foundation stone, the first thing God created, the location of the Holy of Holies. The seventh century Dome of the Rock now encloses the likeliest site of this transcendent physical link between the earthly and the numinous, which is also the spot where Muslims believe Muhammad ascended to heaven. For Jews, it is a place so sacred that the halakha, the religious law, typically treats the entire Har Habayit, the mountain of the house, as in God's house, as being dangerous to visit. So we're talking about the Temple Mount, where the first and second temples uh, stood until the Romans destroyed the second temple in the, about the year 70 AD. Then uh, Mr. Rosen continues, great article, but things may be changing as I discovered on an August visit. As a religion, we decided to stay off the har, said Yehuda Levy, a close-shaven, sharply dressed, Lakewood, New Jersey raised rabbi who is now based here. The Orthodox world in which Rabbi Levy grew up usually bars Jews from the Temple Mount, that is the Har Habayit, but he leads tours of the Temple Mount through an organization called High on the Har. Quote, we'd be foolish to pretend we're not in the minority, end quote, he acknowledged. If you read through the story, uh, what Rabbi Levy says is he started to go up on the Temple Mount and walk around, and people didn't bother him. The guards would say hello. He'd say hello to a, a Muslim a shopkeeper, and then uh, he would start to pray. He didn't draw attention to himself. He wasn't being obvious about it. Then he'd bring a friend, and they'd pray together. Now he takes tour groups, and they pray. 
And he recognizes that he's kind of pushing the limit um, uh, by doing this because he's not supposed to be doing this according to Jewish authorities. And uh, Islam would not be very accepting of it. It'll be interesting to see if there's any blowback from putting this article in the Wall Street Journal. Um, but at the end, uh, Rabbi Levis uh, is talking to the author about uh, assassinations and how uh, the uh, ramifications could just be an assassination um, of him in particular. And when asked about the danger, he's quoted as saying, oh, definitely, he said, when we're a block away from the shopkeeper, the Muslim shopkeeper, whom he sees almost every day. Quote, and it'll probably be that guy, end quote, in short, this Muslim shopkeeper that'll assassinate him. What an interesting place. You know, the temple was destroyed by the Romans in the 70s. And then um, Islam came along, I believe, in the 8th century and asserted that uh, Muhammad had ascended to heaven on his horse from uh, this very spot where the temple used to be located. And so if you ever see a picture of Jerusalem, it always has the Dome of the Rock. It's why the old Temple Mount is such a... Uh, a flashpoint for, for violence. So have you ever thought, well, so if you're Jewish, it's been 2,000 years, and you haven't been able to offer sacrifice. According to Mr. Rosen's article, they believe that in the end times, a third temple will be built there. Um, you know, the Old Testament is like a story that doesn't have an ending. It just kind of comes to an end. You have the law and the prophets. And the story it tells is this amazing story that's, you know, given birth to Christianity and has now been taken all over the world. Uh, it's a story that starts with creation and a great flood, uh, sin, um, the, the Adam and Eve's sin and the great flood, then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, and then story of Moses uh, giving the uh, instructions about in Leviticus and Numbers how sacrifices are supposed to happen, and then it's the story of the of going into the promised land and then be given a king, and the great king is always King David, and then the country breaks apart into the north and the south one by one. Uh, they're conquered by first the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, then miraculously. Uh, the Jewish people, and it is really a, a sign of God's love and fidelity in the world. The Jewish people are brought back. The prophets have criticized the temple. Uh, you know, we don't spend a lot of time talking about the three books that are probably three of the most recent books in the Old Testament, and that's the book of Daniel and the books of First and Second Maccabees, parts of which are not in the Protestant Bible, but they were clearly a part of the early church's understanding of inspired scripture and the story of the people of Israel. Daniel is a prophetic uh, book, and it's about God's plan for Israel and sending a Messiah, and he's going to send the Son of Man. And why Jesus calls himself the Son of Man is because that term uh, describes this apparently divine being in Daniel's book that uh, is made present in the person of Jesus Christ. Then first and second Maccabees, uh, first Maccabees is about 
um, the Maccabeans and how they found the Hasmonean dynasty. Second Maccabees is about how they fight for the temple. And it's where the, the Jewish feast of Hanukkah comes uh, and is required as a, as a minor feast for, for, uh, for Jews. But it'll be celebrated uh, basically at the same time we celebrate Christmas this year, from the fourth Sunday of Advent to the Monday after um, Christmas. But you know, the thing about it is, when you get to Jesus' time and why you tell this story about the history of the Jewish people that goes back beyond writing, really, to this experience of the patriarchs and Moses, it ends, in a sense, with this, this prophecy about the destruction of the temple and then about how the Maccabees fight for the sanctity of the temple and uh, for establishing a king. But what comes out of it, essentially, is just kind of a, a muddle. Uh, it's not a kingship that is rooted in the kingship of David. The Hasmonean dynasty is just rooted in the, uh, the, the warrior powers of this Maccabee family, the Maccabee clan. And that those kings last like 100 years until the middle of the first century B.C., They'd made a treaty with Rome, and it's Herod the Great that usurps all the power, and he's not a Maccabee. He's an Edomite, the ancient enemies of the uh, Jewish people. Look at the Old Testament about the curses on Edom. But Herod basically makes a deal with the Romans where the Romans make him the king of the Jews, which is um, upside down. He basically converts to the Jewish faith so he can be the king. But if you read any stories about Herod, not a, a moral man, he's a horrible man. And then the party of the Sadducees, which are present in apparently at the crucifixion of, well, they are, the, the Bible says they are, the New Testament says they are. They're these kings that are rooted in a basically buying king, buying, uh, not kings, but priests, rooted in uh, basically a usurpation of the high priest role from the Zadok line, Zadok was were the king, were the pre, uh, priests going back all the way to Solomon. But this line of high priests aren't in the line of Zadok at all. This is why there's so much disarray religiously in Israel. But the Sadducees uh, don't believe in angels. They don't believe in immortality of the soul. They don't believe in the oral law, which is how the Pharisees interpret the Old Testament. So they're always at odds with the Pharisees and how they understand the first five books, um, the Torah from the Old Testament. Um, they, on the question of whether or not uh, we're all destined or whether it's free will, the Sadducees believe in, in free will only. They don't believe that there's any real plan uh, and they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's why they clashed with Jesus. The Pharisees, on the other hand, believe in the resurrection of the dead. Jesus clashes with them because they developed the oral law. All of these um, teachings, which their uh, scholars said is how you carry the Old Testament forward. But it's not actually in the books of Scripture. It's why uh, they attack Jesus for what he does on the Sabbath. And Jesus just points out that it's not sacred scripture. It's their teaching. It's just human teaching. And when it comes to fate versus free will, um, they believe in kind of a middle ground um, that, you know, there's certain things about us that are determined. 
Uh, and there's certain things about us that we're free. And then you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Those are the Essenes. Some uh, scholars believe that the Essenes were actually the priestly clan related to Zadok, um, and that they had disconnected from the Jew Jerusalem community out of a, a concern for purity, but also had profound misgivings about, um, about the work of the high priest in the temple, that it was a corrupt priesthood. So they founded the community of Qumran, way on the east edge of Israel, believing that that's the way the Messiah was going to enter into the country, and they'd be the first to follow the Messiah to clean out the temple and reestablish the Davidic um, monarchy because they believed there would be two messiahs, a, a princely messiah and a priestly messiah. Um, and they lived celibacy. And you know, there's a great book by uh, Dr. John Bergsma called Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls, which goes through the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and connects it to the New Testament and the role that these scenes may have played uh, in Israel and the effect that they may have had on John the Baptist, who was a priestly family. And that would maybe lead some credence that they were just disaffected members of the priestly class that had lost out in a power struggle to control the temple. But they agreed with Pharisees concerning the immortality of the soul and the existence of angels, but they denied free will and believed that everything is preordained, predetermined by God. They were like Jewish Calvinists. So the other group, there's others like the Therapeutae in Egypt, which are an ascetic group. Then there's the Zealots, when a member of the Zealots is a member of Jesus' as 12, Simon the Zealot. They're the revolutionaries that would just bring so much misery into Israel and ultimately the crushing of the, of the Jewish people by the Roman Empire. So just think what I've described. Uh, a very fractured Israel, uh, not a sense of coherence where they just disagree amongst themselves about basic understandings of, uh, of the Old Testament. And if you've listened to how I've described these four parties, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, and the Zealots, you can see how all of them are going to clash about one way or another with Jesus. So how does Jesus' crucifixion replace the temple? How does it save these poor people uh, from the faith that awaits them? And I really think about that question. So if you're a Jewish person, what do you do about forgiveness of sins for the last 2,000 years when you can't sacrifice at the temple? I mean, Rabbi Le uh, Levy, uh, he has an understanding that if you continue to push the envelope, maybe the temple will come back. And there are some evangelical Christians that think that. But Jesus, the crucifixion, uh, and his resurrection tells a different story and why we celebrate the feast of Christ the King. So let's turn to the gospel. The reading for this final Sunday uh, Christ the King Sunday, which ends this liturgical year, comes from Luke chapter 22. And here's what it says. The ruler sneered at Jesus and said, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the chosen one, the Christ of God. Even the soldiers jeered at him. As they approached to offer him wine, they called out, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Above him there was an inscription that read, This is the king of the Jews. Now one of the criminals hanging there reviled Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? 
Save yourself and us. The others, however, rebuking him, said in re- the other, however, rebuking him, said in reply, "Have you no fear of God? If you are subject to the same condemnation, and indeed we have been condemned justly, for the sentence we received corresponds to our crimes. But this man has done nothing criminal." And then he said, "Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom." And he replied to him, "Amen. I say to you." Today you will be with me in paradise. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Today you'll be with me in paradise may be the most hopeful words in all of Scripture. So think about this, given the background that I gave you about the Old Testament, Daniel and the books of Maccabees, the Essenes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots. The first group that mocks Jesus, rulers probably everybody who has power in Israel um, because they don't say whether it's Sadducee or Pharisee or Zealot or Essene. It's just this generic, the people are in control. He saved others, let him save himself. He is the chosen one, the Christ of God. Because they have a category, how God's supposed to act. They have him in his hip pocket. They're not open at all to what God is going to do. I did a podcast, if you're fully yourself, how can God give you anything? This is a perfect example of it, when you think you can always know what God is going to do. But these are all Jews that are reviling Jesus. The next group's the Roman soldiers, and they jeered at him. As they approached to offer him wine, they called out, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And so the Gentiles, Jew and Gentile, both revive, uh, revile him and mock him on the cross. And then that part of the gospel ends with, and there was an inscription that read, this is the king of the Jews. Remember, that's Pontius Pilate's taunt of him. He dives, dies a slave's death. But it's very clear in the gospel that this is how salvation comes in. Remember, he always says the first will be last and the last will be first. And so it is with his death. So the two criminals, the one criminal that reviles him, joins in him, although ironically sitting up there and dying and uh, just joining in the general abuse. It's the other one that speaks for all of us when he asks Jesus to have mercy. And what he says to the other criminal, have you no fear of God? If you're subject to the same condemnation. You know, that thief could have said that to the rulers, the soldiers, and Pontius Pilate. He could have said it to Jew and Gentile. We're all under the same condemnation, and we all need mercy. And so, why is Jesus the Savior of the world? We live in a time where uh, being a victim is a big deal. And if you notice the people who claim victimhood, and there's always been some wrongdoing, and so there always is some legitimate claim to being a victim. But how odd it is when victims accuse the people that they say are the victimizer, And so they make other victims by their accusations. You know, Jesus doesn't do that. It's why he's a saving victim. Someone, a priest described him as a water filter, that he brings in all the filth that's surrounding him on the cross. And he filters out everything about it that's unclean. And what he filters back is mercy. Amen, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Who can do that but God and those that live in God? It's the crucifixion that reveals Jesus as the Son of God. 
He's a miracle worker. He has power over demons. He casts out demons. He changes uh, wine and bread into his body and blood. He does all of these supernatural acts. But at the end of the day, what makes him God is not his power. What makes him God is mercy. God is mercy. So God doesn't always fit into our categories. You know, that first reading from 2 Samuel, it said, David began his kingship and made covenant with the people of Israel when he was 30 years old. The reading's there because that's when Jesus' ministry started, when he was 30 years old, crucified when he was 33. Let's now turn to Pius XI's Quas Primus, which is his encyclical establishing this feast of Christ the King. And ask ourselves, why did the Pope do this when Christ is revealed by rulers and violent people and the criminally minded? Why, in the face of all that, would you stand up and proclaim him as king? That's the question we'll turn to now. Well, I started out this podcast about saying the whole story, creation, sin, uh, Noah and the ark, uh, sin increases. God calls Abraham and befriends Isaac and Jacob. God calls Moses. God sends the prophets who are very critical of violence against animals to, for the forgiveness of human sins. Rend your hearts, not your garments, says the prophet. And then I talked about Daniel and First and Second Maccabees because it sets the stage of all the confusion and division amongst the people of Israel at the time of Jesus, very much like our times. Uh, the Sadducees, why don't you just say secularists? Because they are just like secularists in power. Nobody judges them. Um, the Zealots, uh, people who are violent. The Essenes, people who just separate themselves from the rest of humanity because they're just too pure for everybody. And the Pharisees, the people who can, as Jesus would say, rationalize and create rules out of the Old Testament that were never intended by God. That's why he argues with them so much. You know, Cheslav Milos, I've, I've, I've quoted to him before, um, he was a Polish intellectual who escaped the communists in the 1950s. He said the opium of the people isn't religion. He said the opium of the people is the idea that all our betrayals, all our sins, all our greed and corruption and violence, uh, there'll be nobody to call us to account, nobody to call the powerful to account. Think of all the greed and corruption that you can read about in the Wall Street Journal. Holy mother of God. Our country is just overwhelmed, it seems, by these, this high-level corruption and very divided, not unlike the world that Jesus came in. You know, people ask about, they worry about grave sin, and they should. They worry about mortal sin, except I think the big sign of mortal sin is absolute indifference to God and sin. Grave sin, at least you're not indifferent to God. You just know you got a huge problem and are trying to figure out how to deal with it not possible to deal with it without the mercy of Christ the King. But I'd like to go to this story in Luke 13, and uh, you'll remember it. Um, someone comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, will only a few people be saved? And Jesus answered, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. 
For many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able. And after the master of the house gets up and shuts the door, you'll stand outside knocking and saying, Lord, open the door for us. But he'll reply, I do not know where you are from. So will many be saved? Well, for us Catholics, what I'd say is, let's not take anything for granted. Let's strive to enter through the narrow doors. We begin this next liturgical year and have one more chance to go through all the mysteries of Christ. You know, Pius XI issued the encyclical on the Feast of Christ the King, Quas Primus. Uh, he did it back in the 1920s, right after the First World War. You know, uh, the secularists, the people of the Enlightenment, blamed violence and religious wars on the Catholic Church and religious people. So everyone could just disconnect, because if you could prove that religious people are sinners just like everybody else, why should you pay attention to religion? Because our behavior doesn't mean that Jesus didn't rise from the dead and he's not king of the universe. I can be a sinner and still everything the church teaches is true. Our behavior can be an obstacle to other people's believing, but it's not an obstacle to the truth. And so Pius XI just goes through the whole story of Scripture. He talks about the kings and the divine order. He talks about the prophets and how it is uh, they talk about sacrifice and a moral life. And then he talks about Christ the King and why is it that he can be king of everybody. And he talks about the hypostatic union. And the hypostatic union is the two natures of Christ. When you see Jesus hold up two fingers like he's making a peace sign, really it's a symbol that he's true God and true man. Everything that it means to be God, everything that it means to be a human being, accept no sin. And then talks about how he's revealed in the New Testament as Messiah, that is the king and the priest, that he meets these Maccabean and Essene understandings of who the Messiah is to be, this figure, the son of man. That he'll both be a king because he brings divine order into the world rooted in mercy, unlike other political leaders or maybe on their best day, hit and miss, uh, but also is the one that builds the bridge between us and God. Uh, it's why we read the scriptures, why we celebrate Mass, why we honor Christ the King when we come to Mass on Sunday, repent of sin, listen to this uh, word of God as proclaimed by the church, celebrate the Eucharistic mysteries, and then are once again sent in the world to try to live a life that uh, makes it easier for people to believe. Then Pius XI turns his guns on the secular world. The church is being kicked around for about the last couple hundred years. Um, they've imprisoned the popes. They've killed Catholic priests. And he's at the beginning of this century when it's going to get worse and worse and worse because the Nazis are on the horizon. And he talks about how grave an error it is that Christ is not recognized by rulers and people as king of the universe. Because it's that divine order that would give some semblance of order um, to the secular world. You know, there's only so much human beings can do to bring justice uh, into the world because of our own fallen nature. But I always like to say, if you are focused on Christ, you're at least aiming in the right direction. 
and you have a plumb line, a way of criticizing the inadequacies of your own uh, problems. You know, uh, there is no uh, there is no government that has ever brought the kingdom of God to the world because Jesus says when he's questioned by Pontius Pilate if he's a king he says you say I am that he says my kingdom is not of this world how is he a Jewish queen I mean a Jewish king because he has a queen mother our blessed lady because the uh, mother of the king is always the queen mother because in the ancient world David had how many wives Solomon had like a thousand of them uh, which could not have been easy on the man but it's always the queen mother. And so that's why Bathsheba is treated as queen mother when they start to tell the story of Solomon. And so uh, how do we honor Christ the King? Well, devotion to divine mercy, a devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus. Uh, and then as he talks about uh, Christ the King, Pius XI ends like this. Nations will be reminded by the annual celebration of this feast of Christ the King that not only private individuals but also rulers and princes are bound to give public honor and obedience to Christ. It will call to their minds the thought of the last judgment wherein Christ, who has been cast out of public life, despised, neglected, and ignored, will most severely avenge these insults. For his kingly dignity demands that the state should take account of the commandments of God and of Christian principles, both in making laws and administering justice, and also in providing for the young a sound source of moral education. So think about the sign of the, the crucifixion. Who's mocking him? Well, everybody. The rulers are mocking him. The military's mocking him. The Roman emperor through his governor is mocking him. Who turns to him? The smallest, most sinful man on the scene, because even sinners mock them. Although, as that one criminal points out, we all suffer under the same condemnation. I love the words of Cheslov Milos. The real opium of the people is believing that all our sins will find no address, no accounting by Christ, the King of the universe. Seems to me a foolish bargain because his way of life is so life-giving. So please enjoy this feast of Christ the King. And as we prepare to celebrate and enter once more into the mystery of Christ in the new liturgical year. God bless you. Give me a like.